Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politican and today we're on episode 31. It is June 6th and I'm of course with my co-hosts Pratik and Nick. How are you guys doing uh, this fine Sunday afternoon? Beautiful sunny day. I get to see all of your lovely faces and I've shaved my mustache which uh, means we're going to have to try extra hard this episode to cheer me up a little bit. It feels like I've lost a part of my soul, a part of my humanity. It's very different. I feel like Nick looks like he's like 20 years younger though. <laughs> so compliment nothing nothing new to say i'm good uh as i said i think nick looks 20 years younger today so you know he looks like he's one of us so now we're ready to go wow he's like seven years old six years old amazing <laughs> all right well with that we'll just be kicking it off today we got a few interesting topics to talk about first we're going to be talking about the g7 nations deciding to implement some kind of historic tax deal to make big companies pay their fair share with a global corporate corporate minimum tax rate so Pratik, you want to lay it out for us yeah so um in terms of this g7 story there are se- the seven group of seven rich nations um are meeting in person for the first time since the start of the covid pandemic to talk about global tax rates so you know these are the big countries like england france us you get the point and they're trying to implement a 15 um percent tax rate on all companies so they want to make a mandate making it so that every country pays their fair share of tax which somehow they came up with the number 15 because that's just somehow the fair share that they decided is the right number and because that's the fair share they're trying to make everyone pay it but the way this will work is the seven countries that will be signatories will be the ones that technically do it and the other countries they're trying to recommend that they do it from their action of signing on to this 15 percent tax doesn't necessarily mean that even they have to abide by it or if any of the other countries have to abide by it but the idea is that they want to try to make sure that all the big companies are paying their fair share which they believe is 15 percent and they think this will raise tens of billions of dollars for the governments across the across the world so, yeah, yeah and, and janet yellen said on this that the global minimum tax rate would end the race to the bottom in corporate taxation ensure fairness for the middle class and working people in the u.s around the world so essentially they're trying to create some kind of even playing field with corporate tax rates you'll have some countries with way way less than others companies are moving there to just evade tax in their own home countries they also want to ensure if you're selling a product in a country that you're also paying tax for that country not just for your uh domiciled country so overall nick what are your thoughts on this well i think again it's a lot of flowery language some nice words frankly I do think it's a big deal that the G7 came together and agreed on this rate. The Biden administration wanted a 21% rate. Others said that that's way too much, so they went down to 15 and compromised. However, I do think it's a big deal that all of these major countries, France, the UK, uh, the US, and four others, you know, can't mention those other European countries. I've already mentioned too many. God, I hate the Europeans. But all right, anyway, it aside, they think they're better than us. They really aren't. We've talked about this in previous episodes. But in any case, I do think it's a big deal for a launching point for um, generating a global consensus going forward on this and to present a unified face um, at that meeting in Venice a couple months from now, or maybe one month from now in July. So what? Uh, let me tell you the exact countries. So the countries are the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, Canada, Italy, Japan, plus the EU. So I guess the EU is just getting on board with whatever all the other countries are doing. 
But basically, I don't know how this will work. Because the problem is, you have certain countries like Ireland, which acts as a domicile country for a lot of the, you know, wealthy companies around the world, like Apple. And many of those countries don't have the same level of taxes as these other countries do, like the United States. So they're moving to those countries because they're acting like a safe haven. And what happens is that now if you implement it and all these stupid seven countries decide to get on board with this 15% minimum tax rate that they can't came up with randomly in the fly, what that's going to do is now they're just going to go move to all these other countries that aren't charging the same taxes. So it's going to act more as an incentive for them to move to countries like Ireland or move to countries like China or India, because why would they want to pay more tax by being in your country in the US or France? It's not like it benefits them in any way and they're probably going to get the same amount of buyers that they had before even if they don't they're not domiciling in that country that's yeah, and true, just for that... a little bit of a little bit Go of ahead, context Tom. in ireland it's 12 and a half percent and in france it's as high as 31 percent for the corporate tax rate so there is there are huge disparities between these countries so i could see why a g7 country like france would be like hold up rest of the world no one wants to come and make a company in france we have to change the game here sorry nick no, I was just going to agree uh, with what you said. I was going to say the exact same thing, actually. So, well done. Well said. Well, All right. Thank you very and, much. <laughs> and as I said, the other, other problem with this whole scenario is that the issues why i mean this is why i'm always like not a big fan of the corporate tax rate just because it causes a lot of people a lot of com com companies to move out of the country and like go do business elsewhere this is like a whole plan by a certain group of people i'm not gonna name any names to not piss off nick that want to implement this tax rate because this is how they feel is going to make their companies pay their fair share and increase the tax revenue that our country is generating. But the problem is that this does not necessarily act as an incentive for them to pay more taxes. This disincentivizes them from even doing business in that country. And if not doing business, headquartering in that country. I doubt people are going to stop doing business in the United States and like, you know, that because of that. But they're not going to domicile here. So they're not going to pay the same level of taxes to do business here. And then that kind of just destroys and defeats the entire purpose of the tax rate. You have spokesmen for Google and Facebook coming out saying, of course, we want to change the tax system. We want global reform all this and then exactly what Pratik's saying they're they're simply going to go to the lowest cap corporate tax rate company it's just all lip service that's fair uh, one thing i do want to add though is that one thing i do want to add though is that for a lot of the citizens of these countries a, t a policy like this makes a lot of sense a lot of times we hear about how there is a tremendous transfer of wealth and it's mostly amongst the elite in society which are very international it's very globalized the rest of it and so this is one of those policies that sort of, while it is benefits um, the larger economies who do have these higher rates in the first place to sort of clamp down on their companies from going out and giving what they view as their own money, their own taxpayer dollars to other countries, while it does address that, I think it's getting to that citizen's um, point of view, which is that a lot of American workers and citizens don't want these companies, you know, going offshore and paying less in taxes to foreign governments as opposed to just paying their taxes, which then can be used to improve local roads, bridges, the rest of it. And I think from that populist perspective, it would be, it is something that I could see passing Congress. However, because Congress, ha Congress has to ratify it, even though the Biden administration has signed on. However, just granted the way things are with the Republicans and Democrats, they hate each other right now. They cannot get along on anything. 
And even though this policy, which I frankly think would be supported by Trump's base, you could argue that the percentage is too high. But having some sort of global tax rate so that companies aren't incentivized to leave the United States as much, that would be a huge selling point for the Trump base. And the Democrats are a fan of that as well. However, just politics being the way they are right now, they're never going to agree on this. So if this is presented as Biden's plan, the Republicans, even if some of their base agree with it, are going to shoot it down in an instant. And it all matters on how they sell it. But the Biden, Biden administration is the one that's been hyping about increasing the corporate tax. And they even wanted to make this one 21%. I just find it ironic that Democrats think that this is how they're going to keep all this business and actually generate tax revenue. Because if anything, this is just going to lead to more corporate exoduses and people leaving their country to go do business elsewhere where they can generate probably more tax revenue at a lower tax rate. And I mean, and in terms of this, we won't get any benefits from this at all like and this is the irony is that all right this is a 15 percent tax we don't have to we're not going to operate by this because we already have like a 22 percent tax corporate tax now 20 percent. sorry now if biden wants to incentivize to push this to 28 which is part of his whole campaign message which somehow makes him a republican because he's not trying to raise it to 40 50 percent like all these other progressive democrats well in that whole context it's like you're losing the business revenue anyway which you would have been able to get had you not raised the corporate tax and kept it the same. But I guess I'm a Republican, so I don't know anything. So let's move on to the next <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, so up next we have Fauci and his emails. So if you hadn't been hearing, oh, there's been an email dump from Fauci back from last year when COVID began, and there were some email leaks that uh, potentially showed that the there may have been a lab leak back then, and we may have had information back then that uh, – the, uh, the COVID virus had not come from a wet market, had instead come from uh, a lab, and it may ha have even bi be been bioengineered. So, Pratik, you want to read the article a little bit? Yeah. Um, so, basically, there this whole story, basically, Tyler summed it up better than the article did. But when I, <laughs> what I wanted to add is that they have these th rumors that Fauci knew about it, and then they also found this um, email scandal about him having a March Madness virus bracket. So this was like a virus. It was a bracket on seeing who has the most cases. And mm -hmm. I guess they thought it was funny, but it doesn't really seem funny to the rest of the crowd that probably lost a lot of lives because of COVID. And the irony of all this stuff is that Trump from the get-go did not like Fauci. We all know Trump did not like Fauci. Whether or not, like, you know, even at a point he tried to act like he liked Fauci, he hated Fauci. And this stuff but let's just be real here. To show. Sorry, he he hate he hated Fauci because he Fauci wouldn't say what he wanted to say. I'm not saying yeah. Fauci's a good guy. He did good things. All I'm saying is Trump would have hated anyone in that position that didn't just tow whatever line Trump was trying to say at the time. But the bigger thing is that he was more popular than Trump among some people in the country, and that I think was the biggest deal. The slap to the face. Who I is think, this old but, fart? Why do people like him? They should love me instead. The whole thing about like this Wuhan lab stuff, the stuff about China, they have evidence saying that they that Fauci may have known about what was going on that it was coming from China. They don't know. I mean, obviously, like it's they're they're making they're making up maybe that this was made by China on purpose or that Fauci knew about this and didn't say anything on purpose. But they have evidence saying that Fauci did go 
go there and did find did go to the Wuhan lab. And if this did come from the Wuhan lab, then that means that Fauci may have known that it came from Wuhan lab. So we don't know if Fauci was responsible for anything. We don't know if Fauci was, you know, the he was the person that led to this stuff, you know, getting as intense as it did, as the Republican media is trying to argue. But we do know that he did go to Wuhan and there are storylines and there's evidence saying now that this stuff did come from the Wuhan lab. So, I mean, I mean, it just goes to show that we, we really trusted this guy and he may have known more information than he's claimed to know. And he did all kinds of other sketchy things that kind of went over, over, like, you know, was disappeared because he wasn't the most pro-Trump on what Trump was saying. And I'm not saying that this is like, the Trump was perfect on any of this stuff either. But, I mean, I can't say Trump's wrong to try to publicly grow Fauci and I can't, about him knowing about Wuhan and this kind of stuff because if he did, it's just like who? You have to hold them accountable. And if they knew information and caused all these millions of people to die, you have to blame someone. And if he's the head doctor that we blindly followed because he's the god of everything because he's Fauci, well, I mean, if this stuff happened and he knew that this could potentially grow to the extent that it did, well, you got to hold him responsible. And do you, do you know that actually we provided funding for this lab in Wuhan, China, which just adds another layer on top of this whole story. So Fauci claimed that the U.S. had given uh, the Wuhan lab $600,000 over, I think, a five-year period. It later came out it was actually more money than that. I think Rand Paul was the one grilling him for this. But yeah, man, it's definitely not a good look given what's happened, given the fact that Fauci was so popular. And then we have these emails come out and everyone's like, wait a second. It was all a facade. We just went along with it. And now trust in institutions are at an even lower low than they were before. And that's that's saying something. It's just funny, dude. Just think about this. You had all these popular figures within the Democratic Party. You had Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo was like the greatest governor of all time. I still remember one of my teachers in, at AU was like giving us a rant about how Trump should follow Cuomo. Cuomo is the greatest governor of all time on how he's handled COVID. Like, and they're trying to come up with all these lies about nursing homes to try to shut down how much Cuomo has done for New York. And the reason why New York has become such a successful state in terms of reducing COVID um, has been because of Cuomo. And now you find out about the stuff about Fauci and it's like, it's just funny, man. Like, all right, yeah, Trump wasn't great, but I can't say these other people were that great either. But we were saying that those people were great and that Trump was the reason why all this stuff happened. So, like, I don't know. Maybe Trump was responsible for some of this stuff escalating to the situation that it did. But I can't really say that if Fauci knew about this and he didn't do anything until, like, later and then came up with this mask thing. And let's say in the future they found out that masks didn't really do anything to prevent COVID. What well, are we going to do that? That was actually in the emails. Fauci said in his email, oh, yeah, by the way, those masks you buy in the stores, they don't really do anything. Like, that was in the email dump. So that's pretty damning. And is this fun? Is this ironic? And, like... This is this is what these people were arguing. They're, half the people in their country that were like Republicans that were anti-masks didn't get elected because they were anti-mask. Now, all right, well, what if these masks didn't do anything? Well, oh, that means that the, the science was lying. The doctors were lying. Like, you know, the doctors are perfect. You know, they can't lie. What, what were these people doing? What, oh, Trump is it always lying? hate. It, it could be disinformation as well, because I feel like we all were misinformed this entire but, time. No one really 
real even the scientists like we like to assume that scientists know everything that's going on but realistically like we're unaware of many things we really could didn't have a control over the situation like were, i think people wanted us to to have had but you were taught to believe that the science was correct and trump was being anti-science by not agreeing with the signs that the doctors are saying because the doctors know better than trump trump is no doctor these doctors are the doctors and if these doctors know everything that's going on and they're saying you should do this trump is trying to incentivize all of his group of people to not wear the mask by him him himself not wearing the mask which means that trump is causing people to die that was the rate that was the way it was sold to you they can spin the narrative a million different ways to come to any conclusion they've predetermined so like they're they're, they're using mental jumps all over the place to try to find a way to punish trump for every situation that occurs totally agree with you but this is just politics and i feel like the world kind of that's just how it works you know what i mean yeah like i feel like both to, sides that's how it works personally to be fair so you're talking about science improving over time i mean fauci said this in an internal email to one of his colleagues and then he got blasted by other people saying hey you know it's a little irresponsible for you to be saying this given your 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 real role here and you should take another look at some of the latest findings on how you know, this sort of spreads through respiratory droplets. And he's like, okay. Now, part of that was it was someone in China who said, a Chinese scientist said, hey, Dr. Fauci, like, what are you saying? You're going crazy here. And he's like, oh, you're right. Okay, sure thing. I'll dial, dial things back. But again, I think part of this is like, Fauci is just interested in infectious diseases. How do they spread? How do we reduce transmission rates? The rest of it. That's part of the reason why we were funding that lab in Wuhan was to study the spread of viruses. And it definitely got out of control. But like for Fauci to be like this evil mastermind, oh, bigger. masks don't matter. They global don't study. <laughs> they don't want that. I mean, look, for, oh my God, dude. Oh, that would be so brutal. If that was the narrative. It is a global just... study. Literally, we have, they're like, all right, guys, let's test they this. They tested it this, out. This, yeah, let's test That's this virus. That's a cost effective test. Here's a $200,000. Yeah. Now everyone in the world has it. The biggest test that's ever been done. No, but clearly masks do something. It's just, are they 100% effective? Absolutely not. There's no way. And we definitely overblew them and make it seem, we did, we did make it seem like if you're wearing a mask, you've got nothing to worry about. That's what you have to do. That's the number one thing. It's not saying that masks aren't effective at all. They are. Like if you have a sick person and it spreads through respiratory droplets, the first thing you want to do is so that they're not coughing and sneezing in other people's faces and you have some sort of barrier between that. Granted, the cloth masks aren't as effective as the ones that the doctors need when they're actually in the hospital working with patients. But the issue we had there was everyone ran out to buy them. And then suddenly all these medical doctors and hospitals couldn't buy the masks that they needed for their own staff. So they were like, all right, public, don't get these highly effective ones. Go out and buy the cloth ones because we need those. So I just the whole narrative, of course, is all messed up. But Fauci, honestly, dude, my take is that He's a scientist. He's very interested in virus, virology, immunology, the rest of it. But he's not a politician. He's not used to this. And a lot of these internal emails kind of show that. And the March Madness thing with the brackets of different viruses and who's going to be on top in terms of killing the most people, that's just a sick joke. Like the fact that it would even be in there. I don't know if because that email was sent by someone who wasn't Fauci, but the fact that his name was at the top of the leaderboard just very strange to ever have that in an official government email going back and forth. And you could say that's a private communication, but if you're on your government email, 
that is a public foyable request. And that's how we know about it is because it was on their public emails. So just and bad taste he, all around. And what makes this more sketchy is the fact that if this was a public email, that means that other people may have had access to see what was going on. And that means there might be a lot more of a conspiracy of what happened than we even know. And what I hate about all this stuff is the fact that like with the mass stuff, like they really hyped it up out of proportion to the point where if you went somewhere and you didn't have the mask, it was like, oh man, that person is not wearing the mask. He's presenting some kind of danger. And the main issue that happened with the mask is that no one really understood when or when not to wear it either. Like the fact is that you wear the mask if you are sick or if you have COVID or if something you have some kind of symptoms that makes other people um, potentially a threat from you. So like, but they you, would also say asymptomatic have, people made up half half the people, so they wouldn't even be aware they had symptoms. Therefore, everyone had to wear it. I think that was the logic. I know, but that but what I'm saying is like, all right, whenever you get vaccinated or whenever like you don't have symptoms, the, you mean obviously like that's the logic. But then people are wearing around the mask and wearing the mask around in the homes and stuff like that. It kind of gets overboard, and it was really blown out of proportion. And I feel like this is like a storyline that in the future we need to learn from. And honestly, this this was, I mean, you could say this was a big ploy that to lead, to get Trump out of office, but it worked. And I don't know. Like, I mean, obviously, like in the future, if we want to create a new election and we want to get a president out of office, we should kill a million people and create Wait, a Wait, hold on. And then Pitsy. that will solve it, You're the saying it was a bioweapon spread across the entire world just to oust Trump from office. That you wasn't me saying happened? that. That was, that was Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> that was my segue. Because, like, so Marjorie. I, I, don't, I just don't think China would fuck themselves over as much as because like here's the problem we didn't actually get the proper numbers in china but it was almost certainly worse than it was here like they, they fudged all the numbers but we know it was terrible for them all, a lot of their people died i'm not sure they would self-destruct in order to help try to oust trump from the presidency i'm not quite sure that they would see it as such a benefit Amen. given sorry I will add this. Russia rigged the election for Trump. They didn't have any incentive to rig the election for Trump. Okay, I mean, we I didn't even you. know Trump was going to do anything. If Ru I mean, Russia didn't know what Trump was going to do. The dude had not even been a politician. The dude was a businessman that did business in Russia in the 1970s. So that's a connection that somehow he's going to be friendly to Russia. So we should rig the election for Trump. And that was the situation. So we can't say that China didn't do this whole situation to not get Trump in office. Now, I mean, argument still stands we can make any argument make sense it doesn't necessarily if, mean any the, of here's the valid. problem if they did that <laughs> it would have been such a poor move on their part i feel like they're too coordinated and i i just i don't think they would be stupid enough to do that but you know what F fuck it it could happen that could be something that that happened but i, I actually want to transition the conversation a little bit uh i yeah. want to transition into free speech a little bit and like these okay. online companies like facebook google uh, YouTube, whatever. Uh, throughout the whole COVID period, they've been censoring information on COVID based at the, the data we had at present, the data we had at the time, the most up-to-date data, which we later found out was essentially wrong. But people were being censored and banned for saying things that came to be tr 
we don't know if they're 100% factually right at this point, but there's a good chance that they had been correct this entire time. So to me, this brings up an important conversation. We're, allow we're allowing these companies to be essentially be the arbiters of what is proper information, even though we can only go by what they're saying. How are we supposed to know that they're the truth? How do are they the ministry of truth? Are they just dictating what is supposed to be true? Because we now know the evidence points to that not being the case. So I, I really hope that we can have further conversations about the fact that we should leave some ambiguity in the public space and allowing to disseminate information. Not everyone's going to be factually right 100% of the time, but I'd rather have all the information out there and be able to process it myself than have this company dictate information to me that may later come out to be false, inevitably. So what do you guys think about this? I think people just feel incredibly disconnected from what's going on on Capitol Hill and among the elites in society, whether that be politics, business, the international cultural scene, whatever it is, I feel like ordinary Americans just feel so disconnected. They feel like it's a totally different world and they don't, knew who, don't know who to trust. For a long time, the media, let's call out the major outlets, CNN, ABC, NBC, Fox, you know, the list goes on. For a lot of times they said, hey, we're going to give it to you straight. Of course, they've always had opinion thrown in. But generally you could say, okay, even if you sprinkle in a little propaganda like about the Iraq war, that generally what they're saying is accurate. Uh, but people just over time have gotten so used to saying, we don't trust the media, we don't trust government, we don't touch, trust politicians, we don't trust the bureaucrats, we don't touch, trust the bankers, we don't trust the business people, we don't trust Hollywood, we don't trust, like, basically you go down don't the list. Don't trust anyone. Like, we don't trust anyone, and so it's we like, who are you Nick. left to trust? <laughs> hey, you shouldn't. Um, but I think... Again, part of it is this phobia of experts, because in 2016, we could very clearly see there were all these experts who over the past like 20 years through NAFTA, through these other deals, the experts always said, this is in your best interest. Listen to us. Everything will be fine. And then it wasn't. And people say, you know what? Screw the experts. We're tired of taking your you know, voice at face value. You have to convince us of why it's a good deal. We're not going to play ball anymore. And now people are freaking out at those upper echelons. Because ordinary people, one, you know, you could go ahead and call some conspiracy theorists crazy and the rest of it. But two, frankly, I think there's a lot of fault to go around, a lot of blame. I don't think it's any one particular group, but I certainly think that, you know, this whole structure that we built at the top of the pyramid of U.S. society, it sort of failed us. And now people are scrambling to figure out, OK, what's real? What can I trust? What, what should I look for in direction for this country? Who's trying to undermine us? Who's there for me? And Trump, for a lot of people, seemed like that guy of the only person going against the wave, advocating for them. And him getting banned by Facebook only adds to that mix, because that only that only adds fuel to the fire. Because now the people that were saying that, oh, well, Trump is like the answer because he's the one fighting against these odds and he's the one saying the truth. Well, now whenever other companies start banning him, it kind of, you know, adds more sentiment towards Trump because now they're like, whoa, Twitter is banning Trump. Facebook's banning Trump. That means that means Trump has something important to say and these people don't want it out. Exactly. It just kind of always works against the message, as Nick was saying. But what are your thoughts on that, though? Do you all think we should allow companies like that to ban? Tyler? Uh, allow them to ban i mean people for, for the way the way it's being framed and the way i think trump supporters are viewing it is trump versus the technocrats 
it's this idea that it's not even really politicians that are dictating where our society now goes. It's these large, giant tech companies. I've always been against the idea of banning, especially banning a previous president. You know he has tremendous sway. You know, all right, maybe his some of his ideas aren't great. Um, you can talk about the January 6th Capitol riot and how, how he may have instigated that, and that's a terrible thing, but is that worthy of him being banned forever? I don't think so. I personally believe you let the information get out there, and if they're not calling for violence, and I know how ambiguous that is, but if they're not literally saying, we need to go up here and fight these guys, then they should be allowed to speak. I don't really believe in the idea of banning, ultimately, unless someone's trying to just cause violence. But I so, understand that's a very hard line to identify. So I, I live by the motto, motto that you shouldn't ban any of these people. That's my thought process. And the reason I say that is the people that get banned. Like, if you were to actually just look up... I mean, obviously, Wikipedia might not be the best source. But if you were to go on Wikipedia and look up Twitter suspensions, the people you will find that are suspended, you'll be like, why are they suspended? Like, Candace Owens, American conservative activist who's African-American, um, made a tweet saying that she supports um, citizens violate the stay-at-home order in Michigan, and she got banned. Because she was pro-Trump. Then you have other characters like that. You also have Donald Trump Jr. who got banned because he's the son of Donald Trump. Then you have the Conservative Party of New York State get banned. You have Kanye West get banned. Like, Kanye West got banned. Like, why did Kanye West got, get banned? Because he was pro-Trump at one point. Now Kanye West is his own situation. And, like, the thing is that you ban so many of these people, but you're not banning the right people either. Like, why aren't you banning the Shavi? Or why aren't you banning, um, what's his name? Ayatollah Khomeini. Why aren't you banning Kim Jong-un? Why are you banning all these random Republican people? Why are you banning, like, people that, you know, may be racist? Or maybe, like, the KKK, David Duke is banned. Like, obviously, like, you know, we don't support these people. But why are they banned? MTG is banned. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the crazy Republican representative from Georgia. My point is that you're when you start banning, you try to get into the situation about, like, why are you banning these people and why aren't you banning these other people? Yeah, what is our standard process to identify who's bannable or not. And if there is a process, why isn't it more public? Why shouldn't we know he violated this rule by doing this, therefore we can't have him on the platform? I would at least be open to the idea of they're transparent about it. But right now, they don't actually have to tell you why they're banning these people. They simply say, we have an internal process, we've reviewed, it goes against our terms of service, therefore we're done. But, you know, I, I don't think that's a good way to go about it. It's like, expecting the police force to police themselves, which is another issue. But shouldn't we have some kind of way to resolve these situations outside of these tech companies in a judicious fashion that makes sense and is more transparent to the people? And this all goes back for me to these companies, once they reach a certain size, being public utilities, where they no longer have absolute control over who or who is not uh, able to use the platform unless they are violating certain rules that again, would be transparently laid out and there would be a system that you can have a review process and all of that. But at that the current moment, that doesn't really exist. So for Trump, they'll say he incited violence. But, you know, again, it's so ambiguous. They, they, we had all these hearings about it in politics, but nothing came of it. Does that mean Trump is still banned? Is he banned forever? Is he given a, a term of five-year ban because he did X crime? None of that exists right now. There's no, no, no unified law to say 
oh, you're banned for this amount of time for doing this action. It's just almost indefinite, which seems kind of odd. That's not how our legal system works. Why should that affect our ability to speak online? That's a great point. And one thing you mentioned about um, what they get, to, what they decide to put out there, who did they decide to ban. I mean, all of this sounds like they're acting as a publishing house where, sure, other people are writing the content and putting it out there, but they as the company are facilitating the publishing of that material and the ability for other people to read and engage with it. And so I know it's not Section 80. In Section 80, I've been listening to a lot of Kendrick Lamar recently, so that's in my head for whatever reason. But I know there's a certain section of the law which you know Trump really popularized. Uh, the media ran with it for a little bit. But it's around what these companies get to do. And can you end up performing that section of the U.S. code? And part of that is, again, they're acting just like a publishing house, but in a digital space. So should those same rules and regulations apply to them? I think so. But they've got this powerful team of lobbyists and lawyers who Facebook, Google, the rest of them unleash upon Capitol Hill and make sure that none of these things even get brought up in Congress. Nothing gets talked about. And as much as you can hate him, Trump, at the very least, would bring attention to these issues and cut through all the lobbyist noise. And he had his own issues on that end. But at least he brought those issues to the forefront of the American people. Again, because anything he said, it's either you love it or you hate it. But at least you were a little bit more informed on what was actually going on in these very banal, boring U.S. code uh, rulings. Yeah, it's hard for people to separate the personality from what they do and accomplish in office. You know, I think that's the biggest issue with Trump. Because if you just take at face value what he did actionably in in his term, it wasn't as bad as people make it out to be. But Trump himself, personality wise, is pretty much as bad as people. Like, he's an absolute narcissist. But see, and all now, that. but now you say that, right? Me being someone that's more Trump than you, you guys, right? Me being more pro-Trump. What I would argue is that if you were banned from Twitter three or four times when you're actually probably the one that's generating more revenue for the company more than anybody else in terms of publicity, and on top of everything else, you're being banned, but there's so many other people that are actually doing bad things aren't banned, why are you banning the president of the United States? And if that means if you're targeting the president of the United States to ban them, why wouldn't he have the such kind of hostile rhetoric? I would too if I was the president of the United States and I got banned by Twitter and y'all can't say y'all wouldn't either. Like the thing is that you're the president. You are the most most important person in the country. Whether or not you want to think that, whether or not we don't want to believe that. With Biden, some people might be like, man, this old dude is the most important person in our country. What are we doing? But like the fact is that they are the most important person. And if you are banning the president of the United States without banning Kim Jong Un, uh, what is it? You you're not bombing, you're not banning certain terrorist groups. You're not banning certain terrorists. You're not banning Putin, the guy that you think is like the worst person in the world. You're not banning people like you know uh, what is it, Ching from China. If you're not banning some of these people, why are you banning the president of the United States, where Twitter is domiciled? And the fact is that if you left, if you look at it in that perspective, none of these crazy Republican radicals that want to blow up the Twitter people and want to do all this stuff are wrong. Because why are you banning the United States? Why are you banning the United States president? And if that is Donald 
Donald Trump. And Donald Trump represents a group of people that elected him to be the president of the United States, which may have been a majority and may have not been. We don't know, but the same thing we don't know about Biden. Then if you don't know that and you're not sure what happened, then you can't ban the president of the United States. And if you do that, that's such a crappy precedent. And I guarantee you there's so many people right now in our country that are Republicans that don't even look at Twitter anymore because they banned the president of the United States. And I don't blame them because you can't just ban people that you don't like. And if you don't ban people that are actual criminals and actual terrorists and actually have done bad things, well, you should ban them first before you ban the president of the United States. That's all I'm saying. I think everyone should be banned from Twitter. It's a garbage platform. I hope they go down soon. Yeah, literally, if you go on Twitter for more than more like about an hour or so, you're just going to feel way worse about the state of the world and the state of things because you can't actually be empathetic with someone without seeing them. And it's all text. So, I mean, that's that's where the issue comes from just inherently. But with that, let's move slightly to Trump saying or Trump insinuating that he may be reinstated as president, but that he'll definitely become president again, but that it may actually happen during Biden's term. He'll be reinstated after Biden is removed somehow. So what are you guys' thoughts on that? Hey, dude, it's like Jesus, you know, he dies, we bury him in the cave, and the next day the stone is away and he comes back in all of his glory. I think that's what we're gearing up to be. And let's not forget, Florida is like God's waiting room. If you go into any sort of buffet-style restaurant in Florida, it's like at any any second, someone could be sent straight up to heaven. You just look left, and then you miss someone on the right, going right up to Peter's pearly gates. But I, I genuinely think that Florida... You know, this is the rebirth. This is part two of the saga. And who knows, just like the Phoenix, he may rise again. I will I will say this. Um, even when he's doing this kind of stuff, because he knows it's not going to mean anything, but he's just trying to rile up his base and try to get people yeah. excited. He's still getting more revenue to Twitter and Facebook. Just imagine, he's generating more revenue without even doing anything, even if he's banned from the platform. Just like... I honestly feel like, dude, these people that use these platforms are so stupid because they decided to ban the president of the United States that generates more revenue from them than any other individual figure in the history of the company. Yeah, but they're seeing it as Without not even an trying. economic hit. They're, they're <laughs> saying, all right, we're going to lose more in the long run by supporting this because enough people will not support it and not use the platform to counteract well, that. Well, I mean, you're, you're I mean, that, canceling must be out the people think. that would support it. That's the irony, though, is that, all right, somebody like me, I'm not going to use Twitter anymore. Why Were would you I a big Twitter, Twitter user? For I don't think Twitter's ever been a conservative space. Hey man, Let's be I got, real. I got 100 followers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who they are. Basically Dude, a blue though. check mark. <laughs> Dude, it's funny. Like, I feel like anyone you find, anyone that uses Twitter, you get all these random hacked accounts that follow you. And you're like, I need to block these people, but I don't have any actual generated, like, tweets that I'm generating. Last time I retweeted something was in April of 2018. Like, <laughs> it's been a while. That's why you need to tweet out the link to our show, man. Get the word out. The good, the 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 good, the good word. You know why not? Um, then all right, we have guys. Hackers watching your show. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we, we just have bots on. watching us. <laughs> so, other thing. This is a short story. Um, my former boss, Ted Budd, who is the representative of my 13th district in North Carolina, is running for the Senate in the in the in the for North Carolina's vacant seat once Richard Burr retires. 
And he just got endorsed by Donald Trump yesterday after Laura Trump, his daughter-in-law, said she's going to be stepping down from the race. So what this means is that now there's three candidates basically in the running. Former Governor Pat McCrory, which everyone in the world knows who Pat McCrory is because of HP2. Uh, Mark Walker, who is a retired pastor, who was the 6th district representative. So this guy's from Greensboro. My guy's from Winston-Salem. We're all in the same neck of the ballpark, same place and everything. McCrory's from Charlotte. But the thing is that those are the three candidates. Ted Budd has only been in office for three terms. He is technically what you call an outsider, but he's not. But at the same time, he has, he's not an establishment. So this would have been his last year before he stepped down anyway. And he decided to run for Senate. So obviously I'm going to endorse him just because he was my former boss. But I mean, y'all should check it out, see the candidates. And if y'all are from North Carolina and are Republicans, well, y'all should consider Ted Budd. That was my endorsement. I don't make many endorsements, but I kind of have to here. Nice. Yeah. Check him out. Ted Budd. <laughs> All right. And with that, you guys want to move to the, uh, do you have any, do you have anything to say about that, Nick, specifically? Not about Ted Budd, but uh, continuing on the cancellation train, maybe we talk a little bit, briefly mention uh, how BB Netanyahu got canceled by some of his supporters, or not some of his supporters, rather, but um, some within... <laughs> By the country, the, the parliamentary of system. Ousted. Yeah, they're uh, they're actually putting in um, a coalition that has people further to the right of Netanyahu. For <laughs> so, for all of the people who criticized him for being too hard on the Palestinian uh, Israeli Palestinian conflict, saying like, "Oh, you're unwilling to compromise the rest of it." I mean, I actually even said this two episodes ago, where I said, "I don't think there's ever going to be any sort of two-state solution with Netanyahu still in office." And then sure enough, this happens. But, you know, I, I guess I never really thought that uh, we'd go the other way with it <laughs> and uh, have, a, have a coalition government, which is even more to the right. Um, so, again, a little, a little interesting getting us into that part of the world. We also have the Afghan, Afghanistan story. But before we get to that one, um, Pratik, Tyler, do you have any thoughts on Netanyahu yeah. getting kicked out to the curb? What up? What I'll say with Netanyahu is that I, I remember Ariel Sharon. So I don't know if you guys have heard that name before. He was the prime minister, I think, the term before Netanyahu or right before Netanyahu. But he Dirty was known liberal. as the, yeah, he was the most ardent conservative probably in the history of Israel. Like he was like Trump times three. Like everyone, when you heard Ariel Sharon, you're like, oh man, this Ariel Sharon, he's like right wing nut job. But Ariel Sharon was actually the one that created, made Gaza Strip and West Bank go to Palestine. Before that, you had all these, he had all these Dove prime ministers like um, Rabin and um, Perez. And they were, Itzhak Rabin and, um, I forgot his, how his first name is pronounced, but Perez were both known as the people that they thought would uh, create the two-state solution and would create something more along the lines of that. But it was actually the most right-wing conservative nut job that they had in Israel that actually created the closest thing to a two-state solution. Now they might complain about it and argue that it's not great and blah, blah, blah. But before that, PLO didn't even have a state. Now they have something. Might not be great, but it's something. And I just find it ironic is that the most accomplishments that they've actually had between Israel and Palestine have been from the people that have been the most anti-Palestine. 
Well, I don't know about that critique. If you look at Palestinian territory that's controlled by the PLO, I mean, Hamas has Gaza, but the rest of the Palestinian Authority is, well, not the rest of it, the Palestinian Authority is in the West Bank. And if you look at the territory of the West Bank over time, over, like you were saying, the Sharon government and the Netanyahu government, it's slowly been shrinking. And part of that is just due to the fact that, you know, conservative governments, they're a little bit more in favor of the settlements that end up going up. And like you were saying, those doves who were a little bit more concerned on the liberal side of Israeli politics about the international scene and what was going on there, um, they were a little bit more tepid on should we allow this massive number of settlements? How should we sort of put up walls and you know, military encampments to then protect those settlements and sort of slowly increase Israel's uh, total land. Um, but I mean, under the conservatives, you know, I I personally am not familiar with the Golan Heights and when that was uh, actually acquired. But as far as overall, the territory of the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank, it's slowly been shrinking, but that is much accelerated under the, the last two governments. Please continue. Yeah. Oh, so Golan Heights was 67. So that was after the sixth day. Um, so they had a bunch of wars that we know about in Israel. And the six-day war in 1967 where Israel like completely slaughtered all their enemies that attacked them from all ends. Well, that's where Golan Heights gets traded off to, which Nick was referring to. Do you have any opinions, Tyler, before we move on from Israel? Um, you know, just an interesting quote from Netanyahu. He said, we are witnessing the greatest election fraud in the history of the country, in my opinion, in the history of any democracy. So he's he's kind of butthurt about the whole situation. You sure that very, wasn't a Trump quote? That, I was about to say, it's very similar to Trump, honestly. And they were even drawing some parallels between the, the, the Capitol uh, riot in January uh, to this situation, they're saying there's rising political violence pot potentially. Uh, the people are saying online that they're going to be committing violent acts and this could be a problem. The Israeli Secret Service came out and actually said this to the public, saying, like, look, there, there seems to be a higher chance of violence coming up. We need to ease tensions. But overall, who knows what's going to happen? You're right. They, the only um, unifying factor between the coalition seems to be a hate for Netanyahu no sort of political allegiance or alliance other than that or policy-oriented ideas. It's like, we just need this guy out of office. And because of that, we're going to form this coalition, coalition and get him out. Um, so what, do you, what are your thoughts, Nick? No, absolutely. It's not a rejection of his politics. It's just a rejection of his personal character and the corruption that's associated with his term, enriching himself, his family, his friends. That's what this is aimed at. It's not aimed at any of his actual policies. So I wouldn't expect anything major to shift on the Israeli front in terms of that. It's mostly just a rejection of him personally, which, again, we mentioned this during a few other episodes where Trump, even though he lost the election, Republicans down ballot who were running on those same Trumpian ideas, they did very well because they didn't have the personal baggage that he brought to the table. So now let's move to Afghanistan. Do you have more information to share on that, Nick? On Afghanistan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So a few lawmakers have urged Biden to evacuate our Afghan allies immediately. So what does that mean exactly? Well, the United States is planning to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan 100 days from now by September 11, 2021. Um, but the Afghan special immigrant visa, the CIV, takes over 800 days to process. So far, we've had 18,000 people apply to come to the United States. So of those people, 
the vast majority of them, they're Afghan civilians. They put their lives on the line, the lives of their families at risk by working with us as translators, interpreters, the rest of it. And so it only seems fair to me that when we leave, we offer to take some of those allies with us because the second U.S. troops are out, they're going to be absolutely slaughtered for working with us. So one idea that people sort of, uh, con Congressman Seth Moulton and Congressman Jason Crow and a few others, they've signed this bipartisan letter push it to the Biden administration to say, hey, we would like to withdraw a lot of our Afghan allies and something has to be done about this process because again, we're coming out in 100 days, but the paperwork takes way too long to process right now to get them all to safety. So one idea is to put them in on the island of Guam as a staging area in the Pacific so that we can then you know, have a couple months wiggle room to then facilitate getting people over gradually to the United States. Of course, COVID complicates that and the rest of it, but there's a little bit of historical precedent here where in 1975, for example, we took in 130,000 Vietnamese refugees after the fall of Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City in South Vietnam, when the communists won the war. And so we know it can be done with the Afghan refugees. After all, we actually recently, because of COVID, repatriated and got 100,000 US citizens back to our country because of those COVID risks. So we've got 18,000 people here, much less than Vietnam, much less than COVID, but the issue is, do we have the political will to do this? Do we have the political will to take all of our allies, the 18,000 who have applied so far, and actually bring them and integrate them into the United States? Are we willing to do that? Pratik, Tyler, where do you stand on this? So, obviously, you know I'm a neocon. And because I'm a neocon... Pratik, we know you're things. a neocon. <laughs> I, I know, you but are, I gotta, You're I gotta, not only gotta, a neocon, you are the neocon, Pratik. Okay, but I'm not the, the <laughs> neocon. I'm just a neocon. But um, what, what I would argue here is that the problem is that we went into Afghanistan. So because we went into Afghanistan, we have to leave Afghanistan in a better shape than when we left there. And if we can't, then we need to stay in Afghanistan. You're not in a war because you're trying to do something and then leave because you feel like it's better politically to leave. When you're in a war, you have to finish it to the end. And that means that in this situation, if we leave, that would be the stupidest decision that we've ever made. Because that means we wasted 20 years in Afghanistan and then we left it in the same situation that it was in before we went there. And my point is, maybe you need to have a better intern, in, enter and exit plan. The Bush administration sucked at it. The Obama administration was trash at it. The Trump administration wanted to leave everything. And the Biden administration is the same as the Trump administration if they do this. So, like, what did you accomplish? Nothing. And my point is that if you go into one of these countries, you have to end it and finish it and put it in a, make it in a way and establish a government in a way where at least the people that are living there feel satisfied that we did something good for their country. And if we can't do that, maybe we shouldn't go into these wars in the first place. But because we did, I honestly think that it would be one of the dumbest decisions we can make if we left Afghanistan right now. And I mean, maybe may, in terms of like how many citizens we bring in and all this stuff, we should definitely try to bring in as many citizens that want to come into the U.S. But the reason they want to come into the U.S. is because the U.S. has really botched their situation in Afghanistan and it's been the same situation as it was since they've been there. So now they're like, all right, we helped out of this country, um, doing helping out our own country and it hasn't really done anything. 
So we would rather just come to your country because we help them out instead of staying in our own trash country because it's still going to be trash and we might die if we stay here. So I feel like this is the whole neocon problem. Maybe this is what these neocon people were thinking about whenever they decided to go into wars and not go into wars. I don't know. I wasn't there in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s. But I would argue that it has something to do with that scenario where you have to analyze these things and make decisions on when you go and when you don't go and have strategies and the problem with Afghanistan or and Iraq for that matter is we had no strategies we just kind of went gung-ho in there and then left because it was politically smart to leave at the time and the whole ISIS situation happened in Iraq because we left and if we leave Afghanistan there's going to be some new terrorist organization that gets created because we left Afghanistan we're not accomplishing anything we're just creating more problems than what we did from the beginning from the beginning so Pratik's point is that we, yes, of course, we would try to take refugee civilians who have yeah. helped us from Afghanistan into the country. However, the broader picture is why were we there in the first place? We botched our original mission and we're sort of just calling it quits a little bit too early in Pratik's mind. Tyler, where do you stand on the issue of refugees? Well, I, refugees, I definitely think we should bring them in. But I, I also feel like you, at some point you got to cut your losses. Like this idea that after 20 years, we'll finally figure out how to finally solve the problem for real this time. And we'll be able to implement that and then leave properly at a later date. doesn't make sense to me. If we went in with poor intentions and poor plan, we're going to go out the same way because we really didn't have a mission or goal. Um, if our goal was to create a better place, we've obviously failed in that regard. Uh, but to bring over the refugees that helped us over this period of time, it just seems ridiculous to not do that, in my opinion. Whether you bring them to Guam or integrate them otherwise, 18,000 people is just not that many people, especially given the fact that they put their lives on the line for us. For it, it would be the same thing as joining our military, like someone from Mexico or something joining our own military. It's like, no, you've shown that you want to be part of this, and we should help you integrate and become part of this. It, it's the least we can do for you. But as far as leaving Afghanistan, I'm not going to say I'm the most educated on the subject and I have the, the best opinion. But it just seems like at some point you got to cut your losses. As good as we want to make the place, I'm not sure we're able and have the strategy to implement something that'll do so. So it just seems like, uh, you know, in stocks, when your stock goes down 50%, you're like, man, I should just wait for it to go back up. But, you know, things can always get worse is the problem. So. But at least with stocks, there's a goal. I mean, Pratik, would you say that there's a clear goal that we have in mind right now? We never set out in Afghanistan to do nation building. So what's our goal? I think that, I mean, look, I'm a big fan of nation building. I think that, that should, we should establish democracies around the world because then it's going to get into the same situation that happened. Hey, you want democracy? No, there. please leave us alone. That's too, that's <laughs> you, too you bad. You have no choice but though, to be right? democratic. If, if you don't have a democracy, you get into the situation. If you try to establish a democracy and fail at it, you get into the situation. And if you don't do anything, well, that's just a failed situation. So either way you go about it, I honestly argue in terms of the prisoner's dilemma, you're better off trying to establish a democracy. And if that means you're going to stay in there for another 20 years, well, the problem is that you stayed there for 20 years. We don't know about stock market losses, but you have to remember that these are this is millions of tax dollars wasted by you and me. So if it's Billions. already sunk loss, right? <laughs> Trillions. If it's already sunk cost, even though it's sunk, 
you did sink those costs. So you can't just leave the situation because that means that you're letting these trillions of dollars already go down to waste because you decided to go there in the first place. And my point is that whether it was Tyler, can you get him on sunk cost fallacy, please? Please. No, no, no. I I know about sunk cost fallacy. I'm just arguing that even if without, regardless of how, whatever the economics say about this stuff, millions of people died in this situation because of what we did in Afghanistan. The same way millions of people died in Vietnam a long time ago. And my point is that because we went there, we do owe something to those people that did die in those countries. There what if we no owe them leaving because loss? we failed and keeping no, going will just prolong no whatever issues we're causing? That can, I feel like there's no economic cost that can justify you leaving um, this kind of situation when millions of people die. I feel like maybe maybe that's just how I see things. Maybe well, there's probably is a way you can justify things. Well, economic that's what they do. But economics aside, critique in terms of U.S. global leadership, you know, as a neocon, it's sort of strengthening our position in the world, our leadership role, making it so that the United States is a better avenue for navigating through this tumultual tumultuous world that we live in that we can be a true leader and we can set the stage for how things get done how does saying in afghanistan help us with that goal how is it elevating u.s leadership how is it making so that our foreign engagements agreements disagreements go better how is afghanistan helping our country on the international stage in any capacity you're not wrong i don't i don't disagree with anything that you said but i also feel that us leaving would cause the same exact problem because then it's, 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 it's justifying the same exact argument that you made. I'm not saying you're wrong. I fully agree with the argument you just made, Nick. I would just argue that the same argument could be made if we leave too. How does that look? How I mean, what what does that mean in terms of our situation in the world? We're the global leader. Like, we can't just leave countries that we botched completely for 20 years and then just act like nothing happened. It's the same situation. I would we just did argue it in, that in terms of... Yeah, I mean, obviously, but I'm just saying in terms of my prisoner dilemma that I think whenever I'm analyzing this, I just think you're better off staying there at this point than leaving. But then you could also make the argument that you're better off leaving because the result is the same. I feel I like, I think that's I, I feel like no one wants it. to be controlled from the outside. Individuals and collective societies want to be autonomous. They want to be running themselves. And when you have a... It's basically colonialism for us to go in and say, hey, we're going to be running though. your stuff until things get better. When everyone wants sovereignty, I, I don't think the Afghani people or government are going to f- fully come to some kind of resolution while we're there. It's one of those things that n- needs to come from inside. Mm-hmm. And I believe the same thing with democracy. You basically. I, I, oh, sorry. Sorry, I was just saying, though, I, I think I agree with what you're saying, Tyler. The only thing I would argue with what you're saying is that the problem is that if we leave Afghanistan, we're going to create the same exact situation that we had before. So. I'm just arguing that that means that you're saying that all these millions of people lost their lives for absolutely no reason because you're in the same situation that you were in before you went inside in 2001. That's all I'm arguing. And I get that, but it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. And yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't think you keep picking at a wound because it's there. I don't know. It's, it's a difference of thought. But I think that's that's all we have, though. So. I think we can't really sum this up anymore because I feel like we both summed up our sides pretty well. And to be honest, yeah. Nick had the best answer because this is the problem is like you can get in there and I mean, and now your global presence get hurts. But now if we leave, it's the same situation. So it's like, a, it's like as Tyler says, damned if we do, damned if we don't. All right. Well, I think that's, that's all we have though. So 
yeah so thank you everyone for tuning in to episode 31 of politicana uh we appreciate you tuning in and listening feel free to check out the link below to support us email back of the mob at gmail.com with any comments questions or concerns i suppose and uh have a have a good day thank you later guys <laughs>